Harvard Divinity School. Leading Toward Justice, Intersections of Religion, Ethics, and Community Organizing, February 10th, 2023. It's great to be back for this fourth iteration of this series where we're highlighting extraordinary alumnus who are working in different professions, including in the past, we've hit up uh, humanitarians, journalists and policymakers, and today we'll, we, we will be focusing on um, community organizing. So as Chandra said, I'm with the Religion and Public Life program at HDS. RPL, for those alumnix who are not aware, it's a newer program at HDS, just established in October of 2020, that seeks to advance the public understanding of religion in service of a just world at peace. And more specifically, I'm with the Religious Literacy and Professions Initiative. Um, and what this initiative seeks to do is to support professionals across a range of professional sectors that are often defined as secular, but where we know as religion scholars that religion has deep influences. So RPL seeks to support professionals in better understanding and analyzing those religious influences religious influences that are both explicit and implicit to support their efforts to advance justice and nonviolence and to address the most urgent issues of our day, issues like racial justice or climate collapse or economic inequality, for example. And as well, our program also supports, supports current HDS students who are studying religion here at the Divinity School in preparation for going into these kinds of professions like journalism and humanitarianism, or as our program focuses on today, community organizing. We know that religion inevitably intersects with organizing efforts, methods, and outcomes in a vast range of ways as both a force that intersects with political, economic, and other interests to drive unjust systems and practices that organizers are seeking to transform, as well as a multidimensional force that can shape and animate organizing efforts. Certainly when it comes to issues of justice related to reproductive and queer rights, racial, climate, or economic justice, immigrant rights, just to name a few, we can see clear religious dimensions at play in these ambivalent ways, both for and against efforts to advance justice. Or thinking more deeply, we can consider how particular religious worldviews shape how we even understand those issues and ethically respond to them, as well as the organizing tactics and methods we assume will be the most effective in creating the change that we hope to see. So I am grateful today to have three wonderful Harvard alumnix with me who are all deeply committed and experienced community organizers. And they'll speak a bit about how the study of religion can be leveraged in the work of organizing to advance just peace. So Ryan, Erica, and Jasmine, please, please join me on the screen here. Um, we have Erica Williams, who is an organizer with the Poor People's Campaign and the Community Renewal Society a fierce advocate for racial equity and socioeconomic justice. Jasmine Beach Ferrara, who founded and leads the Campaign for Southern Equality, which advocates for queer rights. And Ryan Anderson, who's representing Canada today, and the Calgary Alliance for the Common Good, a coalition of organizations working on issues that, a range of issues, from things like indigenous rights and mental health care, uh, among others. So you can read far more 
in the links or the bios that have been put into the chat box. I encourage you to do that, but for the sake of time, we are just going to dig into it. And and honestly, sometimes better than than reading those um, professional bios is hearing directly from the person themselves about the work that they do and how they got there. So, um, Jasmine, if I can turn to you to to tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got there. Absolutely. Um, let me begin just by saying hello to folks uh, and thank you all so much for the opportunity to be in this conversation and to be in community with you all. It's always a an, an amazing thing to get to uh, reconnect with the HDS community. Um, just by way of a brief introduction, I am um, based in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm Jasmine Beach Farrar, my pronouns are she, her. I'm an ordained minister of the United Church of Christ and work as the executive director of the Campaign for Southern Equality. Um, and we work on uh, both legal and lived equality for LGBTQ folks across the South. Um, and do that at the intersections of other justice and civil rights issues, particularly around racial equity uh, and economic justice issues. Um, I also serve in uh, as a local elected official, uh, serve on county commission here in Buncombe County, North Carolina. Um, so particularly in, in that arena of doing queer advocacy and queer rights work across the South um, and engaged uh, on a daily basis uh, in exactly the kind of questions that we are talking about today. So just really looking forward to diving into this conversation with Erica and Ryan and Susie and all of you. Thanks, Jasmine. Erica, let's hear from you. Well, hello, everyone. Um, great to be with you all today. And if I'm going to introduce myself, I must say who I come from. So I must give honor to my beloved ancestors, uh, my great grandmother, Vernus, and my grandmother, Willie G. Morris, and also to the ancestors, Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and Fannie Lou Hamer, because I come in the lineage of strong Black women who have stood against the empire in their time. And so I am Erica Williams. I am ordained through the Disciples of Christ uh, denomination. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and I hail from the city of Saginaw, Michigan. And I am a follower of that brown-skinned Palestinian Jew. When he stepped on the scene, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captive free, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord now, which meant the Jubilee. And when he closed the book, he said, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that was me he was saying, I'm here to set it off. I'm here to do what the spirit and the ancestors sent me here to do. And that is why I'm here today. I am the founder of Set It Off Movement. And I am also working with the Poor People's Campaign. And I am here to do just that, to set the captive free through the areas of economic justice and racial justice. And thank you for having me today. Thank you so much, Erica. And I also just want to note that Erica is a graduate from the Masters of Religion and Public Life program, which is our new one-year degree program for experienced professionals. Ryan, over to you. Great. Yeah, so my name is Ryan Anderson. I'm the lead organizer for the Calgary Alliance for the Common Good. I'm also an associate supervisor with the Industrial Areas Foundation Canada, looking after the affiliates here in Canada. Um, yeah, my background was actually when I left um, Harvard, I, because I've taken some clear stances on LGBTQT plus issues, basically I couldn't get a job. <laughs> so at least not in the churches here in Alberta. And so I ended up working for the our national bishop for a while where I got to actually play with integrating, organizing and religious life and was a part of creating what is now called the Canadian Interfaith Conversation and what had been the um, 2010 Interfaith um, Gathering of Religious Leaders from Around the World, which was lots of fun. I think we got about a billion and a half dollars for um, 
for maternal and child health around the world, from Canada at least, and worse from others. And then after that, I worked as a parish pastor for a while, and where we did something called In From the Cold, which was having poor people sleep on our church floor, or homeless people sleep on our church floor. And we quickly realized that that was causing post-traumatic stress. Um, and also, cost, did you know, in Canada, it costs $40,000 to give someone supportive housing and $100,000 to keep them on the street in the shelter systems. The only thing that keeps how people on the streets is politics. So when an organizer approached me to build about building the Calgary Alliance, um, I was, it was said, yes, is I think the worst one-on-one -on -one I've ever done because I didn't care anything of the personal stuff. It's like, let's just build something. Um, and then I was fortunate to work with some really incredible leaders in building the Calgary Alliance, um, which now has about 30,000 members um, and about 30 some organizations. And so far we're at about $5.3 billion of victories so far. So it's been, I like winning and it's been fun to win. Wonderful, thanks Ryan. I'm glad to hear that you all have, have been able to make some great successes there. So um, I want to dig into how your academic study of religion has shaped and affected the, the kind of work that you are doing in, in these organizing spaces. Erica, I wonder if I could um, start with you. You've, you've actually studied religion at, at a couple different times in your life. Um, so feel free to speak to both as well as um, in this latest iteration, thinking about the the critical study of religion and how it supports the, the organizing work that you want to do on racial equity and socioeconomic justice. Yeah, so I was raised uh, by my grandparents, uh, right, and Willie Morris, who were sharecroppers in Dothan, Alabama. And so I often tell people they were my first theologians um, because they never went to any seminary. They only had eighth grade education, but they had PhDs in common sense. And my grandparents taught me at a young age about the work of ministry and the work of faith and justice. And so when I was young, I had just the honor of being with my grandparents going around Michigan with the Black Revolutionary Workers and different groups doing work of faith and justice. So I was raised in a home that really sought to do their faith in the public square. And so as time has gone on, as you said, Susie, I've gone to Howard University School of Divinity, uh, the great HU, uh, and had an opportunity to study with some of the greatest scholars from Dr. Kane Hope Felder and other folks who helped to give more shape uh, to this call that I had um, concerning this work of liberation and racial justice and economic justice. And so after I left Howard in 2016, got a chance to work with the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival and to work with repairers of the breach. Um, and I was so grateful to be able to do that because when I left everything in Michigan in 2013 to go to divinity school, I asked the spirit and the ancestors to do, to let me do the work that I was created to do, which was to do this justice work. And so during the poor people's campaign, during all this work in 2020, when we hit the uh, pandemic, I said, there's time for something else. There's time for another iteration of this work of justice. And that's why I came to hire Divinity School. If I want to take on the systems um, and the empire, I must come to the place where the greatest of leaders are equipped to do this work. And so I'm grateful to have been picked to be a part of the inaugural cohort of the Religion and Public Life Program to learn from some amazing scholars and students uh, to do this work. And so I say all of that in the context of throughout my life, uh, the spirit has been shaping me to do this. Um, and I'm very clear after I left Harvard that it was even more clear for me to take on these systems of empire. And I've been equipped to do that through the spirit uh, and through the ancestors. 
Thank you, Erica. Ryan, over over to you. How's your academic study of religion impacted your your work in this space? Yeah, well, what I think about is not just academic. Um, I think about my experience at Harvard. There are really three things that really shaped um, me. The first was actually the field a field placement I did. So I come from a Lutheran, like small town Lutheran, um, where most people look like me. And I had also done church social justice stuff before, and I would also describe myself as we got, we were very good at being really ineffective. And then I walked into Resurrection Lutheran Church in Roxbury. And here was this African-American parish, Lutheran parish that was thriving. And I was like, what is going on here? And I got to work underneath someone named John Heinemeyer and really discovered, first of all, how organizing can revitalize religious communities. But then I went to my first action where there was like 2,000 people. And there was the city of the mayor of Boston up, up on stage. And they were like, we want this piece of land for affordable housing. And the mayor was going, yes, we'll get it for you. And, and I was hooked. And then I think the other was a, actually a contrast. Um, so I was at Harvard, my, my second week in the United, living in the United States, and my first week of Harvard was 9-11. And when I, the interesting thing about being at Harvard was being around all these people who knew the issues really well. Like being around people in the military, people who understood the Middle East, people who understood Islam. And it was clear that, that the war in Iraq was completely unjust. It was a crime against humanity and was based on lies. And even though that was absolutely clear, what I often experienced was progressives fighting amongst themselves more and then watched George W. Bush get reelected. I went, what the hell? <laughs> and what really taught me the question of like, so how do we actually, actually the experience in Roxbury said, taught me, it's like, how do we actually build to bring people together instead of just attacking each other? How do we build for power? And how do we actually build to actually win on issues? And so we don't let the other side win. And like the Iraq war killed half a million people. Like there's major consequences. And the other, the third thing that actually really shaped me was the people. Like I think about like some of, some of the professors that were there, the town, Jose Miguel Benino, Emily Towns, uh, Sarah Coakley, but also many of the students I was with. Um, I think about Brent and Susan and Priyadarshi, and there's a, um, a list of other people who really exemplified the coming together of deep spirituality, deep thoughtfulness, and a committed to public engagement and often at the interfaith level. And I think that for me, at least, those people modeled the type of person that I wanted to become. So those. Thank you, Ryan. Jasmine, can you share with us? Yeah, um, well, when I arrived uh, at HDS, um, I had a, a still fairly cloudy sense of a lot of parts of what my call was going to be. But I, um, but I did know that it was into doing um, sort of a ministry in, in the public square and in the South. Um, and as I look back on the time that I was spent at HDS, um, it really was a combination of um, field placements and academic work and then relationships running through all of that uh, kind of at the intersections of pastoral issues, academic study of religion and organizing. Um, that sort of helped me get really clear about what my call would be into launching the Campaign for Southern Equality, um, but also that really uh, started building the, the, the toolbox that I need to draw on on a daily basis um, to be uh, un understanding the, the communities and landscape of, that, uh, that we're working in, that I'm working in, to understand my positionality, 
um, as a white Southern person um, who's queer identified in those spaces, uh, bringing mixes of privilege and being part of uh, kind of targeted groups uh, in a lot of spaces. Um, and in really specific ways, understanding um, at everything from the systemic and structural levels, the deep entanglement of religiosity and politics in the South and the specific specific issues that there was a chance in, in coursework to dive into around sort of um, historical structures at play and contemporary structures at play in terms of how religion is um, uh, deployed and often weaponized um, in our politics. Um, and, and related to all of that, um, and I think this is something we're gonna get into um, that I've heard both Eric and, and Ryan talking about, um, related to all of that, um, a mix of sort of the pastoral and ethical questions of, of, of how we show up to this work, how we support community engaging um, in this work um, and, um, and, and having that kind of tool set, uh, toolkit related to sort of, um, just some of the historical understanding and analysis, particularly around around religion, is um, you know something I draw on in one way or another, probably every every day, every week of the work we're doing here. Thank you all. I'm um, really resonating with both the examples of people who you encountered, who through their example of what they were doing and how they were thinking shaped shaped you and and directed you in, into this work. Um, as well as both the intellectual and, and the heart work that, that you were invited into uh, at HDS. I sometimes say that um, as an alum, alumna myself, that some of the most, um, some of what I took out of my experience as a student was not necessarily the substance of what I learned, though I learned a lot of great stuff as in my classes, <clears throat> but how I learned to look at the world and think about how to move within it, speaking to what you were just speaking to. Um, Jasmine with thinking about um, communities and how best to engage them, understanding their worldviews and your own positionality and how power is operating and all of that and, um, and how to move ethically through those spaces and intentionally through those spaces. So thank you. I'm gonna, um, for the next question, what I would love is to hear a, like a story time to do, to, for you to share an anecdote of, um, from your career of, uh, an issue or a campaign that you've been involved in where you've been able to really draw on um, your study of religion or or um, your own religious or spiritual practices and traditions or however you want to, to draw on um, your relationship to religious studies and religious practice to navigate um, a strategic response to it, ways to engage communities as part of it and so on. So Ryan, I wonder if I could start with you to tell us a story. You're still muted, Ryan. Now, of course, it's a Zoom call. Someone has to do it. Yeah. Um, so I thought I'd share with you the story of our very first action. Um, so we were just forming, in the, really getting near the end of forming the Calgary Alliance, and we weren't quite ready for action. But then in the middle of summer, there was basically this AstroTurf campaign um, led by some business people to, to cut about $60 million from community services and turn that into a tax cut for them. And we had people who really knew the impact that that would have on, on our communities. And they're like, we just can't let this happen. And it was, yeah, these amazing leaders just stepped up and we had, there was like six, we brought 600 people to the city hall. 
So 300 people packed the actual chambers with 300 people outside. And our first demand was that we could even speak to council because the business community got to it. And basically city council said, no, you don't even get to speak. And everyone like en masse, like marched out. And of course, all the media cameras marched out <laughs> following us. And we raised hell for the city council. And it was, it was actually, it's comical to read the transcript afterwards because the city council had no idea what to do with this and like just tripped over themselves. And the cuts still happened, but none of them fell on any of the social services. They basically pulled it out of reserve. And then several months later, they tried again to do this, this time with about an $85 million cut and we mobilized again and stopped it. And, you know, sort of years later, talking with the mayor, um, he said, you know, your actions change the political culture of our community. And where the hell did this come from? <laughs> it was kind of what we were wondering. And that question of like, where does it come from? I think is what's really, was actually what's important where the lesson is, is that where it came from was actually approaching religion and religious leaders, not often like we live, at least here, there's a lot of critique of religion and criticism. But from this view that's seen like in every religious tradition and religious leaders and communities, there's profound goodness. There's deep, deep values. There's real human experiences. And there's really important community leaders. And when you can actually see that goodness and invite people into that, and then the practical skills of organizing about how do you actually knit together these communities so they can function well together and respect one another. What we bring into public life is, is a power that is often missing, um, is a power that's often neglected, especially in a really, we live in this age of attack at, at a communications level. But when real people bring real values and real experience into public life, something gets created that can exist in almost any other way. Thank you for, for highlighting both the, the ambivalence of the sacred, as, as Scott Appleby um, speaks to it on these issues, but also the the power, the animating force, and the um, the level of dialogue that can happen when people are invited to speak at the uh, through the frame of religion and spiritual commitments and values. Jasmine, how about you? You have a story for us. Um, yeah, so this is um, a story that uh, goes back to when we first launched the campaign for Southern Equality, which was in the sort of 2011 window. Um, but a lot of the themes here are absolutely relevant to the work we're doing in real time right now. Um, as folks may be aware, there's a barrage of anti-queer legislation that's sort of barreling through Southern legislatures, particularly around um, gender-affirming care bans for youth. So just kind of planting a flag in, in, in that real-time moment. But this story goes back to um, the context of 2011 when we led a campaign advocating for marriage equality across the South. It was called the We Do Campaign. Um, and was about uh, stand, standing alongside uh, queer families in the South um, as they uh, took the action of requesting a marriage license in their hometown, um, usually very small communities like Poplarville, Mississippi, and Morristown, Tennessee, and Wilson, North Carolina, um, going to the county clerk's office uh, to deliberately provoke a denial, and in that, create uh, this narrative moment that really told their story as a family living in a small southern town, but also shown a very direct light on what it meant when this discriminatory law was actually enforced in real time against real people. Um, and we really built every aspect of that campaign um, through a lens of how to provide pastoral love and support to families um, as they took these very public steps, uh, often at some risk to themselves, 
um, and how also the theological lens to um, frame these actions in a way that really were about the, um, the kind of reclamation of public space for a community that was really typically exiled to the closets and shadows of, of small towns. So we, we built these so that we led processions through small towns across the South where families would be joined by their friends, their family, and we always had um, affirming clergy in the mix as well. We would do um, blessings um, for the families before they went into the public building um, and just did everything we could to kind of saturate this experience of um, actually provoking the enforcement of discriminatory law uh, with love um, and also with a very sort of intentional posture of empathy towards the people whose job it was to enforce this law. Um, so uh, we were working with a lot of folks who had been um, greatly harmed by religion in their lives um, and for whom religion didn't necessarily feel like a safe place, um, but for whom ultimately the theological and pastoral questions of love and empathy and what it means to act with courage and conviction um, in our public lives uh, resonated really deeply. So we were sort of trying to find our way through the seams of those issues. Um, and just very briefly, you know, the kinds of things that would happen would be a couple, named, um, this amazing couple named Monty and Steve, who took part in one of these actions in Wilson, North Carolina, um, holding hands for the first time ever in public uh, as they walked down the street with their young six-year-old son um, to request a marriage license. Uh, and the power of that when you kind of stop to absorb what that means, um, or people sharing with clergy who were involved with this, that this was the first time that they um, had ever interacted with a minister who wasn't trying to, to convert them or um, basically wasn't condemning them. Um, they'd never had an interpersonal interaction with a clergy member who wasn't taking that posture and doing harm in that way. So um, more to share there, but that's kind of the story in the nutshell of this four-year campaign we led um, and some of the ways that it kind of speaks to speaks to the themes we're talking about today. That's powerful, and especially on on an issue like LGBT rights, where so much of the opposition is framed with reference to religion or within religion. How powerful it is to be able to um, disrupt that that dominant narrative that uh, religious positions are always anti queer, when in fact the reality is that. Um, as Ryan was saying, religions are, are ambivalent and there are a great many religious narratives and religious actors who not despite, but um, rooted within their faith traditions support LGBT rights. Thank you, Jasmine. Erica, over to you. Do you have a story to share with us? I will never forget October 17th, uh, 2016, when some of the family from the Fight for 15 in Durham, North Carolina, and clergy, which were led by the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber, we went into downtown Durham and we blocked the streets as our Fight for 15 family declared that they deserved a living wage. I remember as we walked into the streets, this was my first time uh, engaging in civil disobedience. And I must admit, I was nervous because I did not know how this was going to turn out. And as we marched into the streets and traffic began to back up, as we began to sing, ain't gonna let nobody 
Turn me around, turn me around, turn me around. And the children were singing and clapping and the families were there saying, we just wanna be able to put food on our children's table. Something inside of me at that moment, I knew, I said, oh, God is in this place. And as we kept singing and yelling and proclaiming to the streets and to the businesses, including McDonald's and Taco Bell and Popeye's that they needed to pay their workers a living wage, and not only a living wage, but stop the sexual harassment of black trans women and to stop the harassment of queer folks. So we just kept on singing in the middle of the streets. And as we got arrested one by one, I remember a young woman saying to me at that time I had on a collar, which I don't wear anymore because I need my actions to speak more than my collar. Um, at that time I had a collar on and she said, thank you for being here with us. She said, you know, the church often don't come out and stand with us. They want us to come to the church, but they won't come to the streets. And at that moment I knew, I said, God, this is where your house is. This is where you're calling for us to be. And so that night as we sat in the jail and we continued singing and continued protesting, I committed myself in that moment because I think it's just not about a campaign that we all put ourselves in. It's something we must commit ourselves to. And in that moment, I know I became fully committed to this work of economic justice because in that moment, I saw that families, white, black, brown, native, all together were in the streets declaring their right just to be human. And so even after that night of protesting and civil disobedience, we continued on with the fight for 15. And as we know at that time, this country wasn't really wanting to talk about poverty. You know, even in the 2016 election, even from both sides, nobody said poverty. But as the Poor People's Campaign and Repairers and Fight for 15 kept decreeing and decrying this call for a living wage, that is what has been able to shift the tides in this nation to get us to see that there is no middle class, really. It's either the have or the have nots. And so I would say that that night for me was a solidifying moment, but also it was a striking moment in the city of Durham and even across the South as Fight for 15 continued to take a stand to call for a living wage. Thank you, Erica, for taking us there and for, for sharing your song too. Um, it's it's remarkable to me how these songs live on and they represent struggles of the past that continue today and link us with some of the ancestors in these fights for justice. Um, just like so many of the sort of religious traditions and symbols and practices that are sometimes present in these movements. I'm a scholar of uh, Myanmar Buddhism in particular, and it was remarkable to me as part of the civil disobedience movement after the coup, the, the ways in which religious traditions, practices, songs, and so on were enlivening and animating um, in, in ways similar to what you're speaking to, Erica, and thanks also for also reminding us of the fundamental center issue of economic inequality and poverty that intersects with so many of these, these other justice issues as well. Um, I want to, I'm going to take a little bit of speaker's prerogative here to, to throw out um, a question that we talked about as a group in our, in our rehearsal, um, but it wasn't on the list today, y'all, uh, but hopefully you'll, you'll feel prepped about it and not, not on your back foot here. Um, 
I am curious, you know, we're living at this time of in North America, in a lot of places around the world, but we're experiencing in North America, this iteration of kind of rising um, white Christian nationalism is how it is sometimes described. And as organizers working on these issues of um, economic, gender, uh, racial justice, uh, indigenous rights, and so on, I would imagine that you are confronting that in your work. I wonder specifically what what religious literacy or spiritual literacy, what an understanding of religion um, offers as you think about confronting those dynamics in particular? And this time I'm not gonna call, I'll just open it up. But does somebody wanna take that question first? I, I'll, I will just to get us started, but very much like for Eric and Ryan to hearing from you all. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm I'm um, here in a landscape where nothing about that question is abstract or ambivalent. Um, you know, uh, if you engage at all in sort of the political, the politics of the South right now, whether it's at an organizing space or at the electoral level, you are um, confronted with very clear, unambiguous evidence about the presence and power of white Christian nationalist ideologies and the way that's taking shape in our political landscape, um, the way that it uh, those, those um, sort of elements have become increasingly politically empowered within the traditional political uh, power structure of, of the Republican Party, specifically in the South, um, have, you know, folks holding local, state, and national office um, reflecting those ideologies, but then also at the ground level, the way that um, grassroots groups, militias, movements are operating and, and tethered into that. So I'll say at that level, it's very real. Um, I think it's very important that we are precise and name it as white Christian nationalism. Um, and then I think, you know, a, a, the piece that you have to sort of live into and reckon with every day in the South is, um, how do we understand that at the spiritual and relational level? Because these are also people that we know, um, the people that we work with, people that we may be um, contending with, running for office against, you know, organizing against, but also living down the road from. Um, and I think that uh, to me, you know, there's um, this very rich set of questions um, about sort of what our faith teachings are and how we live into that around. Um, but holding the analysis about what's so dangerous and also um, understanding what that means at the level of a 16-year-old young man who's coming of age in an environment like that and what's happening to him at a spiritual level um, and what his future holds in our community's future holds. Um, so a lot to unpack there, but I'll just tee those things up as some starting points. And of course, Erica and Ryan want to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Jasmine. Ryan or Erica, do either of you want to? <laughs> Should have pointed quicker. No. <laughs> you know, so just a little bit nuanced. So I live in a different context. Um, so it doesn't show up quite the same way here as it does in the United States. Um, but I think that the same underlying phenomena is the same. Here's much more around issues, I think, around colonialism and ongoing exploitation of the environment and also how religion holds particular power structures. And actually, um, Erica, you talked earlier on about you know, the connection between religion and empire. And I think that that is one of the things we have to get really clear about is that how much 
religious traditions have either been taken over or become aligned with systems of imperial domination. And so whether it's the Roman Empire historically, whether it's the American Empire today, um, that that is a deep religious challenge. And, and how deeply it's a part of our religious traditions is also really important. Like what, what we found working around truth and reconciliation is just how deeply those imperial understandings have shaped our theology. But what a part of that religious literacy is also knowing that, you know, it's easy to clump up a whole group into one big group and throw whatever crap you want on them. But the reality is that these traditions are far more complex. Um, like as Christians, we have to remember that for the first couple hundred years, we were mainly slaves and it was a religion in opposition to the empire. So how do we reclaim that roots? Or I come from a pietistic tradition that was opposing the, the church and state religions and siding with the siding with a lot of the workers who are suffering back in Scandinavia and they got kicked out. <laughs> um, so like there's this alternative tradition within almost most religious traditions and I, and I find it within all almost all religious traditions. So how do we re-engage that? But then I think the other question is how do we also find the best of our religious traditions? And I think, you know, the principles of all humans are worthy of dignity, no matter what, and that preferential option for the poor. So whoever is exploited, whoever is at the, whoever is being knocked down, whoever, like including the earth, like how do we always hold that up as one of our guiding lights um, as we approach these things, but also never dehumanize anyone? Thank you, Ryan. Erica, anything you want to add to that, or I can call on you first for the next question. Hey, I, I'm so glad you wrote, wrote, brought that question up. So I, I wanted to hear from my my fellow uh, friends on this on this call because this is something that I think about all the time. Honest to goodness, truth. Um, I, you know, in knowing the history of this nation. Uh, when our ancestors were brought to these shores, they were brought on the basis of Christianity in the sense of that there was a hierarchy and God had called white people to be superior and black people to be inferior. And so we know the theology. If you haven't read J. Cameron Carter's uh, theological frame of race, you need to look at it um, because it gives a lot of intel to this, this conversation. But even going into present day, as I marched through Charlottesville in 2017, and we saw folks who on the other side, you know, were very clear about their faith, called them to be out there marching and protesting. Um, God had called them on the same side. We're over here, faith leaders from Reverend Tracy Blackman to Cornell West and other folk here saying, well, no, we know that Jesus was on the side of the oppressed. But even going even further to January 6, 2021, when the rude boys and the proud boys set it off at our capital. They went in the name of Jesus. And so that is the thing that I think we don't want to talk about. A lot of folk don't want to touch that, that this is all done in the name of white Christian nationalism. And so my thing is, this is something I think that all of our uh, movements and not just 
white spaces, black spaces too, because white Christian nationalism has taken over all across the nation. I'll just say that and leave it there. But ultimately, I think that in this, this conversation or this question, it is really important that we address this because as we prepare for this 2024 election, and I'm just going to say it like I feel it, um, as we are seeing the ways that things are playing out with some of the candidates, um, I'll say DeSantis, I'll say his name in this space, he is someone who was very clear about his candidacy is geared around Christianity. And so I think it's important that we have not just in the Christian text, a battle for the Bible, but in a lot of the religious spaces or, or context, because most of the major denominations, or excuse me, religions, their foundation is justice. It's about taking care of the poor, the orphans, the widows, the least of these. So we must begin to have this conversation and really get clear about what we're up against, because this form of Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism, excuse me, that we're seeing, it's not about God, it's about whiteness, power, and wealth. And if we don't start talking about those three trinities that they're working with, we're going to be in for a rude awakening come 2024. And so I don't know if all of that was clear, but I am saying that that's something that's deep on my heart right now. Because if we don't address that matter, all the other things that we're talking about, they're not going to be important because that is the thing that they have the platform and the power to use against the oppressed. Yeah, thank you for highlighting the urgency of that issue and taking us back to Charlottesville, too, for the reality of it, how it shows up in very violent, real ways to threaten communities as well as in systemic ways and how our... Uh, ability to analyze and be critical of these intersections and collusions between the religious and, and the political can help us potentially craft a new way forward. We are going to open it up to Q&A, so please do send some questions along for um, our speakers today. Before you do that, I have I have one, one final question for all of you, um, which is a, a little bit another one, another doozy. Um, but, you know, I just, I've been thinking a lot, we at RPL have been thinking a lot about just how many urgent challenges there are to issues related to justice at this current moment, this era of backlash that we're in right now that you've all been highlighting. Um, and I know many organizers are working urgently to respond to these challenges, often um, by their nature in ways that require forms of confrontation and resistance to powerful forces and actors um, in ways that are necessary and can also have these effects of um, polarizing communities even further, um, have the potential risk of doing that or of reproducing old solutions that, that haven't been effective in the past. And as our faculty advisor, uh, Dr. Moore sometimes reflects on, and, and she draws from, from Paulo Freire in saying so, just practice, praxis requires a kind of critical reflection and action to ensure that one is not unwittingly, despite the very best intentions, reproducing unjust forms of personal relations, or reifying systems and, and structures and problematic assumptions and ways of, of operating. So I wonder how you think about that. Jasmine, you spoke a, a little bit about it in your answer just now in, in terms of the communities you live with and, and how to engage with them um, in ways that, that, that recognize the need to continue to have deep 
relationships. Um, and I invite you to say a little bit more on that, or Erica and Ryan, how you think about the ways of doing organizing creatively and critically so as not to um, reproduce or reify polarization or harm. Jasmine? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think a couple of things that we rely on as guide stars, and, and I will just be sort of very personally here, less, less heady, more heart, that for me are kind of non-negotiable, indispensable pieces of this as a, as a Christian person doing this work. And the only way I would know how to be sustained in this work is, is really being deeply grounded in a love ethic um, and, and the expression of that through, um, through, a, through an approach of empathy um, and, and towards really praying every day about what it means to love, um, to love God, to love neighbor, to love enemy. And, 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 um, and also to be deeply attuned to um, harm and how, um, and creating organizing environments in which people can really be clear about how they can stay safe and how they cannot be exposed to harms that, that, um, that can be overwhelming and, and very damaging. Um, I think we have to have real, very real conversations about that. And then within all of this, you know, constant uh, checks and cross checks around issues of privilege, around issues of how white dominant norms, for instance, are shaping approaches around the interplay of efficacy and respectability politics when you're organizing in a Southern context in particular. Um, and then the, just the very slippery slope that I think I see play out in organizing spaces. Not, it, it, you're always on a slippery slope. You have to just know where you're at um, around like when, when we have wins, they very rarely look like the ideal of what we want and how we define what winning means, how we interact with political systems um, that have inherent limitations, um, and then how we interact with um, funding streams and philanthropic sources that also have complications. So all of that is like a very big ecosystem of constant questions to be asking. The simplest thing I wake up each day thinking about is this question of how do we come from a place of love? How do we live into very clear teachings about that from a Christian perspective? And then how do we think about um, supporting the, the voices, the leadership uh, and centering the voices and leadership of those most impacted while also caring for each other as we, as we do this work and interface with empire and systems that have um, you know, a tremendous amount of, of complications associated with them. Great, thank you, Jasmine. Erica. You know, that great, I say philosopher, and I would also say theologian, Michael Jackson had a song said, the man or the person in the mirror. And so I often say that oftentimes in our organizing spaces, we're not rooted in love, we're rooted in lust. And I say lust of power, because a lot of times we show up in these spaces wanting to be seen and wanting to have some form of influence. And so I think it starts all one individually, we must look at ourselves and see our own biases and see our own things that we're struggling with. Because I've been, let me just keep it honest in this space, I've been in spaces uh, with folks, um, in particular white folks, um, and oftentimes they don't want to hear the voices of Black people and they don't want them to be in leadership or they think they can't leave. Um, and so that's oftentimes a struggle for me when you say that you're here for my liberation, but you're actually here more oppressing me. So I think this starts with us looking internally to see what we have when we come to this space, because Che Guevara said it, a great revolutionary must be rooted in love. 
Um, so we must see where our heart is, where our love is. So, so that's one thing I would lift up is that's really where, where are we coming when we come into these spaces of organizing? But then I would also say, um, I think that one thing Spirit gave me during my time at Harvard Divinity, one moment, one morning in prayer, the Spirit said, those who are proximate to pain, push, and those proximate to power, pause. So I think what I'm struggling with in a lot of times is people who are proximate to power are always saying, wait, pause, we can't, we must, we must wait. When is it going to be a time when we recognize in our spaces that there may call, they be, there may be a time that calls for us to have to get out of our comfort. There may come a time, as the, the kids say in the streets, we're going to have to put some skin in the game and not just talk about these things or theorize them, but actually be willing to put ourselves on the line. So as a Black queer woman in this space, I often tell folks, I know that when I step on the scene, I'm already a threat to the system because I'm not going to be quiet because I didn't come to be status quo. I came to set it off. But I'm also checking for some people on the right and the left of me to come in to say, you know what? We're here. We're not going to step back. We're not going to compromise but we're actually going to ensure that our people are taken care of, that our people are loved and that dignity is brought to the forefront for all people. So until we get out of our comfort, I think our movements will continue to be complacent and continue to look just like the systems in which we're fighting. But I just believe, I just believe that there are some people, I'm here with them in the Zoom room today and even some in the, in the, in the participants, excuse me, in the, in the overflow, in the room that are seeking to be ones who will be the ones who will cry out and will say that we can no longer continue to have these systems of empire and will do all that they can to check themselves and check the structures in which we live in. Thank you, Erica. Ryan, anything you want to add from your experience? <laughs> you know, I think, um... I don't have a lot to add. I think what has been said so far is quite beautiful and quite true. But I think a couple of things is just somewhat to reiterate what people said is, I think, first of all, it's just to recognize how deeply those systems of empire and oppression are integrated to us both consciously and unconsciously. Like it is deeply ingrained in us and it is hard to undo them. And not on all sides. And I think the other thing I just reiterating is like, those religious principles of recognizing the humanity of all people. And, you know, previous people talked about the ethic of love, like holding that and it should really intention with the preferential option for whoever has been pushed to the, pushed, like pushed to the edges who have been exploited, who have been marginalized, like holding those two together. And actually is a real tension and recognizing that there's actually a real tension in there because of how we have denied people's humanity. Like, how do we live in that tension? But, and then also I think a bit of, you know, what Erica said is that like we need that tension so we can build power with, but the power needs to act. Like if we don't move to confronting issues, what are we doing? And also recognizing confronting isn't punching each other, but confronting confront is bringing our heads together. So how do we bring our society's heads together in real, and conflict is a part of democracy. So in real confrontational democracy where the issues can't be sidelined, but we are forcing our communities to bring our heads together to say like, how do we actually solve these issues? And realizing the process, um, what Jasmine said is we work in really messy systems. So we're gonna mess up. <laughs> So how do we create yeah, this? Yeah, and the and the search for purity can, can be oh, a, it's, it's a loss, it's a great impossible search, right? And purity is a great way to block action. Yeah. Is yeah. what I've learned. Thank you. 
So we have some great questions that are that are coming in in the chat box. I'm just going to throw out uh, a couple of them. Jasmine, there's one for you in particular that's um, asking about um, trans youth uh, recognizing the issues of homelessness amongst LGBT, especially, but the particularly trans youth who experience that and your advice on working with policy leaders who have been in opposition to trans rights. Erica, there's a question for you about the attack on CRT and the education system, a critical race theory in the education system, and what are other mechanisms or means by which to help do that education work about thinking critically on issues related to race, um, particularly in the United States here. Um, and then uh, Ryan, I wonder if you might say something about Ned's question here um, related to some of the colonial roots of philanthropy and speaking to what the relationship is or is not between organizing and philanthropic work. So Jasmine, to you first. Yeah, I'll keep this brief because I really want to hear from Erica and Marion on those questions. Um, the approach we take, and, and this is like literally something we're working on every single day right now, is, is interacting with elected officials in the South around issues of trans rights. And the approach we take is that we'll sit down with anyone, anytime, anywhere, for conversation and that we try to be very strategic about who's in that conversation from a perspective of um, uh, on the one hand recognizing and meeting that legislator where they are and on the other hand not exposing particularly um, youth uh, in our community to the harm that can come from having conversations that are um, that that uh, uh, you know are based on uh, the a lot of bias promises so um, our approach is to just show up again, like relentlessly and keep having the conversations and to understand that um, my general experience around how people um, are positioned on queer issues is that people do change. People can change, people do change. It is almost always idiosyncratic versus formulaic. And it is about showing up again and again and again, creating a space for some trusted dialogue relationship. Um, and in my view, the Holy Spirit is often in the room when and as that change happens. And sometimes it happens over a month and sometimes it happens over 25 years, but it happens often enough that we feel committed to continuing to try to show up, um, but to do it in ways again, that center community care um, and, um, and, and, um, and are consistent with those values. Thanks, Jasmine. Erica, CRT and education. Yeah, just real quickly. I mean, I, I think ultimately what we must move from in this moment where I often see all across the country is we have a lot of Black Lives Matter signs in front of our faith spaces. It's time to move from the outside uh, 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 markings and move to the indoor uh, situation. And so I say that in the context of throughout history, in particular, I know in the Black church, it has always been the church that did political education. It was the church or the, the faith spaces that taught community about the various issues in society. So I would say to all of us here on this call who are faith leaders or faith proxy to begin to challenge our particular faith spaces to do that work. So you don't want to do it in the schools. We oftentimes have children there on Sundays. Work away where you can put it in your children's work or even with your Bible study. See, we want to read the Bible, but as who was that Niebuhr or, or, or Bonhoeffer, one of us that have the Bible in one hand and the paper in the other. Y'all going to put me out of here, HDS, because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't learn too well. <laughs> Whoever that was, one of them. But they said have the Bible. 
Bible in one hand and the paper in the other. We have got to go back to that model in our faith spaces of using what they won't give in society to bring to our people in community. And they don't have to go to our faith centers. You can just host a community session and say, we're going to talk about, you know, it's Black History Month. Come on. If we want to do Black History Month, say you're going to talk about how things in this country have been set up and do that as a way to oppose the various systems, but also fight like hell to go to the school board meetings and go to other spaces to make sure as a faith person that you state that your faith cause that you stand against injustice. So as the Bible says, I'm, I'm, I'm Christian, I'll say it says go down to the king's palace and issue a decree. And so that's what we must do. We can't stand on the sidelines and just allow for these things to happen. We have got to get like the dream defenders did down in Florida and other groups. We as people of faith have to get in there and call for this change. So do it at your own faith center and in the public square. Thank you, Erica. Ryan, we've got a minute left. So can you tackle philanthropy <laughs> and colonialism? <laughs> no, um, but the uh, just to take a shot at it, is I think we have to recognize that, you know, from a religious tradition, a lot of philanthropy comes from almsgiving, where people would leave the church, toss money to the poor, so they felt better about themselves. And also that, you know, a lot of who has money is structured in the injustices of our society. And so I live in a place where most of the philanthropy money comes from the oil industry <laughs> and they're probably doing climate work in the midst of that and then often that's used to silence advocacy but on the other side you know human generosity is one of the greatest characteristics of humanity and there are also people who are willing to be generous to to bring about real change so how do we foster that and then how do we also you know that the and we need money to hire people to build power so how do we also deal with it the world is messy and so how do we work within that mess of needing money, knowing where it comes from, but still using it to do the work that needs to get done and not be bought? I go one. Thank you so much to all of you. And I apologize to our um, audience members who weren't able to get their questions answered, but we, we did see it and we did read it and hope to be able to continue this conversation moving forward. I also just wanted to highlight what Kristen already threw into the chat box there. We have our religion and the legacies of slavery events that are going on on Monday evenings this term. Um, one of the books that Erica mentioned, Theologies of Race, was, was just channeled on Monday night session in a conversation between Professor David Holland and Catherine Jen Loom from Stanford. So you can join us next Monday night when Dan McCannon will be sharing family stories of HDS's own intersections with, with slavery and in practices of enslavement that, that Harvard um, was complicit in. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Jasmine and Ryan and Erica for your powerful reflections and for the powerful work that you're doing and the examples you offer to current HDS students um, as representatives of the alumnix community. And I'll hand it back over to Chandra. Great, Susie, thank you. Thank you, um, Susie, Erica, Jasmine, and Ryan. This was a wonderful discussion. Um, and thanks to all of you in the audience for your questions and for joining us today. I wish we, I do wish we had more time um, and I hope you'll continue to reflect on and discuss everything we talked about today. Um, I hope you also continue to stay connected with us um, through the HDS website and the HDS uh, Facebook and Instagram. We really look forward to connecting with you and and to everyone, especially our panelists, thank you so, so much. Sponsors, Religion and Public Life and HDS Alumni Relations. Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.